On today's episode, we have a Q&A for Masters Runners with Frank Sanchez. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Okay, today we have a patron release. So this was actually recorded about three months ago and was exclusively for the patron tribe. And if you're unaware, patrons are a part of my private Facebook group, which is the Run Smarter Patrons, and they sign up through the link in the show notes, contribute five Australian dollars per month. And one of the perks is they get exclusive episodes once a month. And so this is one of those old recordings and there's currently about 25 exclusive episodes um, in the past couple of months. I have the list here. We've had um, abrupt changes in training that might go unnoticed. We had how to balance training and recovery, five common strength training fears, and traits into the self-sabotaging runner. Um, but this one was a little bit more special because I had a guest and the patrons submitted their questions to Frank and as I said, did a Q&A episode. Um, if you are a patron and have already listened to this episode, I have timed this with a new patron episode coming out. So if you're excited about this episode and you're like, oh, a new Run Smarter episode, and then it turns out that you've already heard it, have no fear. Wait a couple of days because a new patron release will be scheduled in a couple of days time. Okay, I'll talk about Frank in the actual recording. So let's dive in. Let's welcome our new patrons. Um, it's been a little bit longer than usual for this patron episode to come out as I was waiting, trying to organize a time with Frank to to jump on. So it's been about six weeks, but nonetheless, you'll get a, a new patron episode in about two or three weeks time from now, and then continuing on the first of every month, as we have been doing. Um, welcome to the new patrons. So Karen Friend, Andy Chan, David Duff, Michael Mills, Rebecca Appleby, Paul Troiano, Nathaniel Richam, and Laura Mings, thank you everyone for signing up and joining the patron family. Hope you found that episodes like this and upcoming guests, um, you're finding those useful and submitting those questions and getting the most out of becoming a patron and hoping that's enhancing your running IQ and helping you with your training and your running endeavors. Today we have, like I said, an interview with Frank Sanchez and he has been a medical director for the Lifetime Fitness Miami Marathon. He has been a surgical team member in sports and athletics. Um, I was having a chat to him before we actually hit record, and uh, he's been a physician associate for 24 years, and 
currently specialises in heart and lung transplants. But aside from that, has done a ton of marathons and Ironmans as well. And he reached out and said, um, let me know if you wanted to have a guest on to chat about XYZ. And we thought that Masters Runners would be up his alley and also a common topic that you guys would want to listen to. And so we'll rattle off all of your questions when we get into the conversation with Frank. Frank Sanchez, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Brody. It's a pleasure and it's, I know that you've sort of, we've been chatting back and forth for quite a while now. You've helped me, well, assisted me in the, the Run Smarter book and then we've got a, kind of just collaborated a little bit and uh, I think this idea for a podcast is, a podcast episode's really handy. We've had a couple of patrons submit some questions and happy to get your expertise, but before we dive into those, do you mind just introducing yourself, where you're from and talk about like your career, both personally and professionally? Yeah, sure. So um, I was born and raised here in the United States. Uh, you know, family is from Spain and then migrated over to uh, the Caribbean and Cuba. And then, but I was lucky enough to be born here in the United States. Um, they came over right before um, Fidel Castro took over in power. We kind of saw the, the writing on the wall and somebody wore a uniform and they ran <laughs> and they left the country. Right. So I've been very lucky to... Uh, I've been born and raised here in South Florida. Um, and so I went to school here locally and I was about, <clears throat> you know, your typical Hispanic, uh, you know, child here in the United States, you know, plays baseball and did all of the uh, typical, you know, Caribbean kind of sports and stuff, a uh, little bit of soccer and such. But um, I found myself extremely overweight at the age of 11. <clears throat> and um, my next door neighbor, was a um, minor league baseball player for um, um, for a pretty big team, the Minnesota Twins, and he, you know, told me one day he says, "Hey, we should go to the park. We should run, and uh, and train together. You know, I can help you on my off season. You know, and I I looked up to him and I said, "Yeah, you know, I'd love to play baseball like you." And he got really excited. We were both going to wind up going to the. I went to the same high school later on in life. So it was like, yeah, so we went and he took me, he was basically, he said, we're not playing any baseball. <laughs> we're, we're exercising, we're training. We're going to get that weight off of you. And I'm like, sure, whatever you want to do. <clears throat> and so we did. And it started off by running. And, um, you know, he lit the passion to run. And then the, uh, you know, the, uh, the Olympics uh, came to the United States and I got hooked on it on TV and turned into a little running career. From there, I ran uh, cross country and high school and, uh, dabbled a little bit in college um, at the University of Florida. I, I, um, I tried to walk onto the team, but uh, I couldn't. I had too many studies in uh, my career that uh, went on to be in medicine overtook my, my time too much. So it was way too busy to try to do so. So I went to the University of Florida where I studied uh, medicine in the College of Medicine with the Department of uh, Physician Associates. And um, my career, you know, went on there. Uh, once I graduated, I came back to South Florida from Gainesville and I practiced uh, trauma and critical care here um, in Miami uh, at a very, very busy level one trauma center that deals with a lot of um, penetrating gunshot wounds and stab wounds and such. And then my career took me to New England because my wife went to law school uh, where I wound up learning um, cardiothoracic surgery and heart, heart failure surgery. So I currently came back to South Florida after she was done, and we've been here ever since. Um, and I do um, cardiothoracic surgery, heart and lung transplant for adults and pediatrics. So I deal with a lot of heart failure, a lot of athletes, um, a lot of athletic-minded individuals. 
And that's kind of like been my last 24 years has been in medicine, practicing that. And, you know, my passion for running has been the same. So I've been running since I'm 11 years old and uh, my career has just skyrocketed from there. I've been very fortunate to travel all over the world, except for Australia. (laughs) Well, it's a faraway place, but that sounds excellent. It seems like you're right up the alley, both, you know, practically doing a lot of these. I know you've done marathons and Ironmans yourself, but then like the medical knowledge that you have, it's good to have the combination of the two. And I'm happy to, or excited to dive into these questions and see what you have, because I have asked the patrons um, master's related questions as, as the topic. I know that's a, a quite a, a popular topic for a lot of the audience and we'll dive in. So Craig asks the first question. He asks for people running marathons and half marathons and in the middle of training, would you recommend increasing or decreasing the amount of cross training to help masters athletes? Um, what's, what sort of thoughts do you have for Craig? Yeah, no, that's a, that's an excellent question by Craig. So I think that the biggest thing to understand is that I think as we all become masters athletes and I think masters defined a little bit different by everybody. I think if you're, if you're at the age of like, you know, 38 years old or so, you may be like, I'm not masters ready. Uh, but believe it or not, a lot of people do categorize masters as being, you know, late thirties um, or so. <clears throat> I think once uh, a professional runner retires, they consider them masters uh, at that point. But if you look at like uh, what Joe Friel, um, you know, the father of triathlon training um, has written, and he wrote a very good book called uh, Fast After 50, um, which I had the pleasure of reading uh, several times now. And basically the synopsis behind that talks about um, how you how you would uh, prepare yourself as a master's athlete, that you need more rest, more days off, um, a lot more easier days. But in order to maintain your your fitness it is recommended that you continue to do high intensity vo2 max threshold type um workouts so where people fail is kind of like oh i'm getting older i think i'm just going to take it easier oh they're saying i need to take more days off that's fantastic from seven i'm going to drop down to five workouts a week and the next thing you know is that they drop their vo2 max because they haven't been doing anything to to maintain their threshold and I think that that's the key that if you listen to Joe Frio, if you read his book or you listen to his audio book, which I would recommend to your audience, <clears throat> you know, Joe talks about that quite a bit. And I think that that's important to, in marathon training to, to really consider that, um, that in line. So that higher intensity sort of efforts, can that, that obviously be in training um, for running, but would it also be, I guess, carried over to cross training efforts absolutely yeah so if you had like a if you were going to do a cross training effort and say that you were going to substitute a day on the track right so say you normally would have your track workout day on a tuesday for example and then on a thursday you had tempo runs if you wanted to do track workout on tuesday and then on thursday you you didn't want to pound your legs again and you wanted to kind of give your your legs a little bit of a break but you still wanted to maintain that intensity you would do um, a spinning session on a bike indoors, for example, or you would do a, a threshold workout in the pool and, you know, running in the pool, which would be an excellent way um, to continue that. Um, so, yes, absolutely. If you were to cross train that way, you could substitute one of your cross training days for an effort day uh, that would that continue to tax and continue to tap into that VO2 max. Hmm. You did mention that 
spin and I guess pool running would be good cross-training alternatives. Um, David asks, is there a type of <clears throat> cross-training more effective or <clears throat> one that you might prefer? <clears throat> would you fall on those particular examples? Absolutely, yeah. So I think that the the, the ones that, that I know in particular that work and having read um, several different books, and I did a lot of this research myself because I've been injured a fair amount <laughs> on my own and <laughs> In my life, I am not immune to the injury bug by far or niggles. Um, it's funny because Chrissy Wellington, the triathlete, always says, oh, I always had some sort of a niggle, but she looks so happy running down Kona winning every year. And I think <laughs> the reason why she did so was <clears throat> she would actually um, do a lot of these cross-training things. So the number one thing that mimics running, uh, in my opinion, is the, the elliptical bike, the kind of like that elliptical uh, stand-up bicycle. Um, mm -hmm. if you don't have access to that and, and there's, I did a lot of research looking into the elliptical trainer at a, at a gymnasium or at a, uh, or in your home, um, that would be the next best option. Um, cycling in particular, very specific, um, especially when it comes to mimicking the same cadence as you would on the road. So if you try to maintain that 180 cadence and you're a 180 cadence kind of runner, that's great. If you're a 178 runner try to stay within that range. <clears throat> um, and then moving down. So, so in order from importance, you know, elliptical, um, cycling after, after cycling, then you would look at, um, specifically uphill, um, uh, walking on a treadmill at an incline, um, with or without a, a backpack, a rucksack or a weighted vest <clears throat> that would mimic, uh, the intensity that you're trying to maintain in that sense. Um, if you can't use a pack because you have an injury in the lower extremities and adding that extra weight is a problem, then just incline walking would be fantastic too. Um, and then from there, then you would get down into pool swimming and then swimming in general, which swimming being like the very last thing that all it's really going to do is just, it's not going to benefit your run, but it's going to maintain your VO2 max if you keep it. So if you do your intensities that way, it'll be fine. But it really is not nowhere near the same as, say, pool running with a mm. pool noodle between your legs. And actually, I, I don't know how, how convenient it is. I'm sure Australia is a huge swim country, right? So you guys have pool noodles all the time in the pool and the kitties that you buy at the store. Definitely. If you take, a, if you take one of those pool noodles and you put it literally between your legs and it's like just a U, you know, around you <clears throat> underneath your leg um right between your legs you can run in place with that pool noodle in the deep end of a six like a six foot or a three and a half four meter uh depth and get the same workout you could you could kill yourself in one of those mm. workouts in the pool <laughs> yeah and there's a hundred videos on youtube on how to run in the pool and do running workouts nice <clears throat> is there I guess when it comes to masters athletes, is there a recommendation for how many days or how frequently people should be cross training? Yeah, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't do more than twice a week unless you have a history of injury. Mm. So, um, again, Joel Friel and, and some of the others that, that you listen to and you talk to that are, that have this information out there. Um, they really get into the whole <clears throat> twice a week at, a, at is the gold standard. And then if you really needed to, then you can add that third day. I would tell people that instead of an additional day of cross training with something aerobic or anaerobic or something in that sense, I would do, I would lift 
I would work on strength training, um, <clears throat> very specific to what you're going to run. So sitting there and working on, uh, on squats is fantastic. Um, I think if we look at, uh, what, um, Meb Kowalewski did, um, for the 2004, I believe, or 2004, 2005, um, New York city marathon where he's, he hex squatted with a hex bar, uh, one and a half times his weight. He built his way up to one and a half times his weight. And he was able to use that as additional push off and work on, um, getting vertical length, extending his vert and extending his forward, uh, drive on his push off. And he was able to break away, right. I think at mile seven of the marathon and he stayed away for the entire race. <clears throat> um, that year that he won New York. So I think that there's definitely a lot to be said um, getting into the strength training component of things. Um, I think it's mm -hmm. crucial for a master's athlete to substitute we've got a that couple of, We've got a couple of strength training uh, questions coming up, and I know a fair few of these will overlap, but Laura asks, uh, she usually in the past has been getting injured with doing speed workouts, and she asks, is it okay to train for a marathon when only just doing easy runs, long runs, tempo runs, um, is that, can that be done? Um, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting question. Can it be done? Yes. I think that it's done routinely. I think a lot of people skip all of that additional work um, that you want if you want to try to qualify um, for a Boston <clears throat> or if you're looking at like an OTQ uh, standard for Olympic trials for some people. Um, but as a master's athlete, if you skip that amount of work, then understand that your chances of having a PR or a Boston qualifier, if you are like what we call, we have a group of friends down here and we make fun of each other because we're called the bear, we call each other the barely Boston qualifiers. We're the type of people that if they add another 35 seconds to the event, you know, we will use 22 of those seconds to try to qualify <laughs> until the very end. So I myself am a three-time Boston qualifier, but I was a barely Boston qualifier at Marine Corps for that reason. I literally got to the end of the race and it was uh, a quarter mile uphill to the Iwo Jima Memorial in DC. <clears throat> and um, I needed, you know, it was 59 seconds I had left. I, I used about 22 or 23 seconds to get to the top. Um, but, uh, it's the scariest 22 seconds of my life. Um, but yeah, I think that if you do cut off any of that work, then what you're going to sacrifice is, and you might sacrifice the, the, the ability that you understand that you may not PR per se, but yes, you can do it. There is a, another book that comes to mind is run less, run faster, where they skip all of, it's kind of a little bit of the opposite of what we're talking about. They skip all of that junk miles that people talk about and they only do a track workout a tempo workout and a long run with speed intervals on the weekends and there's nothing else but they do stress the cross training in there and the physio work and all that other stuff so if you do skip those things and you have to understand that you need to add other components to it so there's nothing wrong with her question her question is excellent but i would urge her then to put in the time and the cross training and the strength training to try to make up for those days that she's not running. She needs to continue to pound her body somehow mm. in a different way. Yeah. <clears throat> I guess it comes back to what the overall aim is. I know just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. 
This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Like as you get older, you tend to lose like tendon stiffness, you tend to lose VO2 max kind of fitness and all of that is relatively preserved if you train in those elements and you know, if you do speed workouts and hard efforts, then you're going to be preserving VO2, you're going to be preserving tendon stiffness, tendon strength, those sorts of things. But in in the same way, like if you don't do those things, you're slowly going to, I guess, decondition in those particular elements and those mm-hmm. particular intensities. And one shouldn't expect to avoid doing speed efforts or speed workouts, totally drop them off for several years and then expect to outperform and PB and those sort of things just because those elements, that stimulus is, is totally absent. Yeah. And I'll give you a perfect example, if I may. So the last couple of years with COVID and not racing and what have you, my last marathon was New York City in 2018. <clears throat> and prior to that, I had qualified for Boston in 2016 in Chicago. I couldn't run in 2018 my my Boston marathon race because I wound up getting pneumonia and I had a, another injury and I was on steroids. And then that was the year that it rained sideways and it was freezing in Boston. Mm. So I think if I would have gone, my, my doctor would have crucified me um, for having gone there. But anyway, the point is that I spent the next two years with a horrible metatarsal injury uh, and, a, and a Morton's neuroma. So running on too soft of a shoe, nothing against the shoe company, um, but I was running in Hoka and I was more of a stability runner in an A6 shoe, for example. I needed like an A6 2100 series shoe. And long story short, I had to revamp my running, get into a wide toe box shoe like Ultra <clears throat> and start running in Ultras. And for the last two years, it's taken me to run in a zero drop shoe because I've been running since I was 11 with something with a heel. Well, this year training for Chicago and New York uh, in the fall, I've been sprinkling in some speed work again and I'm in nowhere near shape where I was, you know, three, uh, three years ago or four years ago. Um, so I know that realistically for me, I'm having to substitute some of those days with being on the bike, doing some intensity, strength training, and doing a lot more physio work because my goal is going to be to complete the two races in a zero drop shoe, which is going to be hard for me, right? In a zero drop shoe and then be healthy at the end, which I'm choosing to do that instead of trying to qualify for Boston or trying mm-hmm. to hit a PB. Um, you know, I have to admit that those days may be over for me right now. Not according to Joe Friel. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> a few, like some people, some masters runners, they just have the goal of longevity. Just, I just want to continue running th- th- as long as I can um, be as resilient as I can, I guess. Um, but happy just to go slow, go long, enjoy my races, enjoy, you know, just, not pushing myself speed wise. And if that's their prerogative, then that's, that's fine. I think that's um, each to their own and there's multiple ways to approach a successful running career, I guess. Um, Moving on, we've got Karen who says many of the running plans ask for a four to six day running week, I guess. Um, But she seems to get injured once she increases that frequency beyond three days. Uh, is there is this a function of a master's runner? What do you have for Karen? 
Yeah, I think Karen should definitely hire a coach like you. <laughs> like she should definitely get a private coach. No, I mean, I, I, all kidding aside, I think that if you're that injury prone, I think it would benefit tremendously to do the following. Number one is if you can afford it and if it's possible, go and see a physio that deals with runners. Try to find it in your area. I don't know how realistic that might be in Australia, but I, I, you guys have a lot of triathletes and a lot of endurance athletes tremendous endurance athletes in the country. So I think it'd be fairly easy to find someone that's educated enough to look at why you're getting injured. Is it your running form? What's going on? So that's number one that I would do. I would invest in a coach. The second thing that I would tell her to do is <clears throat> if that's the case, yeah, you could probably back off on the number of days that you're training. You don't need to do four to six days, but you can extend your, your, your days of rest in between. So say you would run on Monday and Tuesday, you would take Wednesday off, you would cross train uh, if necessary, or just completely off. Then on Thursday, you would run. On Friday, you would run. You would skip running on Saturday, for example, and then you would do a long run on Sunday. That would be one way to pattern it. Another way of patterning it is if you would take that Monday off after the Sunday so that you don't have back-to-back -back, you know, days of long run and then a, a short recovery. But you have to do something, you don't have to do something the day before your long run, but you have to do something the day after your run because that makes a huge difference in getting that turnover and that lactic acid and everything. So a lot of my that are masters runners, they have resorted to, you know, they're like burnt out triathletes. They're like, they have resorted to riding bike on those days or doing a recovery swim or going for a long walk. Like I know some of them that will put on like a 20 pound rucksack and rucksack you know, four miles uh, instead, just to get <clears throat> the body acclimated to the into the pounding still and not letting it forget about it. Um, but if you need to take like, you know, I have a 20 mile run coming up in, in two weeks, the Monday after the 20 mile run, I'm probably not going to run, I'm going to, you know, ride my bike in the afternoon if I can, uh, or spin. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's a, it's a good thing. But I would definitely advise her to get to get with a good physio and get about great advice. I do think most people should be able to not get injured running four days per week. <clears throat> um, if their training schedule and if they're like their right intensities are okay. Um, but I've had a few people in the patron group agree with Karen saying, yeah, similar to me, if I increase my frequency, I tend to get injured. But I guess there's a few nuances in there in terms of what those three days to four days looks like as well. How off, how far are they going? How hard are they doing? What's their intensity levels? Because I think a safe bet for most, if they go from three days to four days, is just to continue the same weekly mileage, to sprinkle it into more days in the week. So if their three days of running is, say, um, 15 miles, if you can still do 15 miles, but just do it in four days, that's mm -hmm. usually a safe um, a safe transition. And then you've got more days to play around with in terms of slowly building up mileage here and there. Um, but like you said, those rest days are quite important. And you've sort of mentioned earlier that for masters runners, generally speaking, you do need more rest. You do need days off. You do need easier days. Um, and that can still be done four plus days per week, but it just, you need to be a bit methodical and in how you plan it and how you structure it. So thanks for that advice. I do think a running coach and um, some sort of sports advice or a physio would be uh, a good start to at least give them some direction. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, that's a good way to go. Rachel asks, uh, should we increase or decrease our strength training as we get older? And if so, by how much? Definitely increase. Um, I think that we're all afraid of putting on uh, too much muscle mass. And I think that uh, I think people don't realize how difficult it is to put on muscle mass, <laughs> especially as, a, as an endurance athlete, um, whether you're a triathlete or, or just a pure runner. Um, in order to put on a, just one pound of muscle mass, the amount of <clears throat> body weight lifting that you need to do is ridiculous. I think you would have to be at the gym something like four to five times a week for two and a half to three hours is what I've uh, researched and looked at uh, in the American Journal of Sports Medicine. But yeah, I would definitely weight train more if I could. Um, uh, I think that the... There's a pretty good podcast um, by Jason Fitzgerald from Colorado called Strength Running, um, and he has a and he has a you know very interesting outlook on it. <clears throat> and a couple of years ago, I followed his strength training advice, and I think he had uh, twice a week, ideally, doing a, an Olympic coach that was showing you the moves, and it was your basic moves. It wasn't anything crazy, you know. If you look at the three things that's going to make you a stronger runner. Um, squatting, um, uh, Romanian deadlifting, um, you know, RDLs are fantastic for you, and um, and and adding some sort of, of upper body push uh, exercise. So like a push press or not a bench press, but like a push press uh, would probably be your best bet. Anything that's overhead, weights overhead would be fantastic. So if you did those three things twice a week, with some intensity into it, adding, increasing your weight slowly. If you add more, more weight training, you need it. We need it because our bones are becoming more brittle. Our tendons and our ligaments and our fascia is, is not working the same that it did when we were in our thirties. Um, and I think, and it's evident if you just look at it, our, our stride length decreases, our push off decreases. Um, and then people start looking into changing their running form too much. And it's not the running form. It's just that you've lost your elasticity uh, and you need to keep that elasticity and that bounce and that specificity is very important. I think that doing plyometric exercises, your bounding, your A skips, your B skips, your C skips, all of those pre-workout warmups that no one ever does. <laughs> I'm guilty yeah. of not having done it myself. I would much rather add another five minutes of running to my run than go out there and hop, skip and jump all over my driveway before running, but this year I've added all that to my runs. And I got to tell you that the first, that first mile of the run for a master's runner, that's usually dreadful that you hear them say, it takes me three miles to warm up. That's been eliminated from my running. Good to hear. Uh, I might add one more as well into that routine mm -hmm. of doing some calf strength. So you've mentioned um, squats, RDLs, and some sort of push press. I think maybe calf raises, single leg calf raises or heavy calf mm -hmm. raises might be a great option and might come into the, the role of plyometrics. Like if you do your A skips, B skips, there might be some sort of calf work there. But again, like you said, people shorten their stride length when they, they essentially slowly as the decades go on, turn into a bit more of a shuffle. Like their cadence stays the same, stride length gets shorter and <clears throat> less requirements to push off the ground in a hard force. And that just slowly atrophies the body um, 
and the calf complex and you slowly get weaker, but it gets preserved a lot. If you do a lot of strength training, like you say, twice a week, um, David asks, uh, what do the workouts look like in terms of from a younger athlete to a master's athlete in the strength in the gym? Um, does that workout look any different compared to maybe the intensity, the sets, the reps, the weights? Um, what does that look like? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think it's loaded and it depends on who you ask in the muscular endurance uh, world. Um, if you talk to strictly uh, like Olympic weightlifting coaches that are training runners these days, then that looks more of like <clears throat> doing, for example, a warm-up set. So uh, 25% of, of your total body weight for that exercise. So let's just theoretically say you lift hundred pounds on your squat. You know, you can only squat hundred pounds right now. Um, and then if you take 25% of that, obviously it's 25 pounds and you, and you warm up with 25 pounds and then you work your way into 25 pounds and then you go to 50, for example, right? Half of that body weight that, that you could squat and you do that three to eight, you do that eight times. So you do one set as a warm up and two workout sets for a total of three sets. And you slowly start adding more weight to that until you get to your maximum and then you start bringing down the number of repetitions so as you increase your weight you drop your reps so eventually your reps will look something like from instead of eight reps at 50 pounds you will then go to um, five reps at 75 90 pounds for example as you get and then you do that up to about six weeks before your race and six weeks before your race you would then change to explosive weightlifting routines. So a, uh, a push press, uh, an explosive push press, um, you know, box jumps, more plyometric exercises, um, you know, step ups using, um, you know, weights and working on that explosiveness as much as you can. So you get away from the heavy lifting and you're working more now and just that, that pure explosion to help you get that pop and that pep in your run that you're looking for towards the last six weeks of your training. Interesting. Yeah. There's plenty of ways to be creative in the gym. It doesn't have to necessarily be that boring three sets of 10 at a no. somewhat moderately challenging weight. Um, so yeah, very good tips. And yeah. Jillian has her question, uh, which not, not sure where we're going to take this, but she asks, what's the best way to modify a plan or just generically modify the plan for a master's athlete, is it reducing mileage, reducing intensity? Like, is there any direction to answer that? Um, <clears throat> now, I could go a number of different ways, but any any answers for Jillian? Yeah, I think if you're going to modify it as a master's athlete, you have to definitely cut back on uh, the volume and the intensity. I think that, it, you know, that's not maybe the answer that people want to hear. But um, there a couple of questions ago, you had one of the Patreons that said that they, when they added uh, too much intensity or frequency, they got injured. So it, it's going to be very specific. If you're the type of person that is like for me, if I add too much speed into my workouts, I get a niggle. So I know that I need to be very cautious of how, where I sprinkle in my speed workouts, how I do them, how, and how frequently I do them. Do I follow the training plan to a T or do I vary from there? Because I follow a book, believe it. And I have a friend of mine that's a that was my personal coach for many years and he was a, a Brazilian uh, Olympic coach. And so over the years, he's, he's like, Oh, I'll train you for free. Just, you know, help see my you know athletes and 
and help them when they have any issues medically. And so I love to do that in the community. And so he trained me the last time I BQ'd, but, um, you know, I had to call him and be like, Marcelo, I can't, <laughs> I can't run nine miles with this, with these intervals in a mono Tuesday. Um, first of all, I got kids. And second of all, I, you know, I'm getting out of work at six o'clock in the evening, you know, by the time I run nine miles, I'm exhausted. So I think that, you know, he sat down and he's like, trim it where you need to trim it, but try to get in, uh, you know, most of it. Um, and then let me know and we'll take it from there, but please trim the workouts. So yeah, I would cut back. I would first cut back on the distance or the time that you're total training a week. And then I would cut back on the intensity, always keeping in mind, like Joe Frio said, um, the intensity and the VO2 max is what's going to really decline as we get older. So that's the last thing you want to mess with too much. Mm. Yeah. And I guess reducing the intensity doesn't necessarily mean remove the intensity. Cause like we said earlier, mm -hmm. maintaining some sort of intensity is actually encouraged in masters athletes to try and preserve a lot of that VO2 and tendon stiffness and, you know, the ability to produce power and that sort of stuff. But maybe <clears> when you're young, <laughs> you know, the intensity distribution might be 50, 50, like low intensity <laughs> to high intensity, but I guess that needs to get, um, balanced a little bit more with masters runners. It might look like 90% low intensity, um, 10% high intensity, or, um, you know, it's, it's a fine balance. And I feel like for, for masters athletes, especially speed. Well, I guess for all runners, the wiggle room that you have with speed workouts is a lot thinner than the wiggle room that you have for like low intensity mileage in terms of, um, reducing your risk of injury. Like if you, if you run really fast, 10 minutes, very different from a very fast 15 minutes, it's only five mm -hmm. minutes difference, but that is very little wiggle room and might increase your risk of injury. But you know, that same thing, 10 miles, low intensity compared to 12 miles, low intensity is just a very, um, minute jump and has, has lower risk associated with it. So people do need to be mindful that yes, high intensity workouts probably should reduce, but still need to be in there, but also it needs to have the right balance, right intensity, making sure you're not, um, changing things up too much. I think that's, yeah. that's very important, but yeah, some yeah. good insights there. Alan asks a good question. Alan asks, what do you think about these 11 or nine to 11 day training cycles rather than just a traditional seven day training cycle? So extending that out a little bit. Um, and have, have you heard of this before? Do you, do you know much about it? Do you have any advice? I did. For, yeah, I did. Opinions? Um, the first time I heard of it was through, again, was through Mev Kobleski because he was coming back from a hip injury that almost completely ruined his career. And he did that where he kind of pushed it out 10 to 11 days <clears throat> and he, um, he went on that cycle. And, um, I gotta say that there is some validity to that. It does work for, for certain runners. You just have to find the training plans that are out there that do it that way. Because I think most every book that I follow, and I think that I've had very good success following books to get accomplishments in my running. Um, it was very recently that I had like a, a coach to, to, to do my running. Um, but if you look at most of the books, I think that not a lot of them explain how to do that very well. <clears throat> I want to say and research Jack Daniels book, uh, to see if he has 10, 10 day training cycles in there. Um, I think the last book that I saw that might've had, it might've been Matt Fitzgerald that he might've had 10 day training cycles in there. There is validity to it. It does work. 
it works for you. If it works for you and you feel that that amount of rest is, is making a difference in your long runs, that's fine. You just have to understand that you may be, you, you might be running by yourself a lot, right? Because not everybody might be in mm. the same, if you're running with a group, then you're, it's going to be hard to maybe convince other athletes to not run every weekend, for example, in their long run. And you may be running your long runs on a Wednesday or on a Tuesday or on a Friday. And they're, you know, so you may not be synchronizing with them too much, which might be a benefit to you because they may be pushing you too hard or holding you back for that matter. So validity, yes, <clears throat> is it good? It obviously works. It just has to, does it work for you? You have to try it and you have to see if it works for you. I've never done it personally. I've wanted to dabble in it. Um, but I've always gone back to that traditional seven day training plan. Um, kind of, um, that's just the way it was. Uh, I did it once I think in triathlon, sorry, triathlon training where we did that, where we did long bike rides during the week instead. Um, and, and that year was very hard because the volume was ridiculously high. It was mm -hmm. 20 hours a week of training. <laughs> I, well, I think people who just have regular structure, if they're, if they're working full time, if they've got kids, if they've got other commitments, I think, you know, that seven days is just convenient. Like most mm -hmm. people do their weekend log run and mm -hmm. it's because they have the time available. But, you know, some master's runners might be retired. They might be mm -hmm. um, working part time or just having some time off. And that might be a, a good way to, I guess I'm thinking about Karen and her question about <clears throat> whenever she increases her run beyond three days per week that she gets injured, but maybe a 10 day training cycle might help. So one week might look like three runs, but the next week might look like four runs and then back to three runs the week after that. And so mm -hmm. maybe that's something that um, could help with that structure, but it's good for runners to know that that option is out there. It doesn't have to be seven days. And if we are these athletes that probably that say run two days in a row and then have a rest day and then run two days in a row again, then a rest day, then maybe one run and a rest day. That doesn't really fit into a week. You know, it's yeah. going to have to eventually be um, maybe too much rest or eventually turn into three days of running in a row if you're just going week by week, but um, might have a bit more flexibility and um, a bit more balance if it is a 10-day training cycle. So, you know, that option is out there for people and I guess you can try it, see what it works mm -hmm. like for your routine. And if you're finding benefit from it, then might be something pursuing. Yeah, there are plans out there. I know that they exist. Um, and I think that what you just said is, is excellent. I think to add to that, to kind of like, uh, you know, put a put an end to that uh, point is that you want to keep that consistency in your training. And I think that if you keep consistency in your training, that you're, you could do whichever one. I think, like you said earlier, mm. being uh, seven days for the average master's person, it's just convenient because of family commitments or what have you. But there are those people that are retired in their mid to late 60s, uh, like my father-in-law, you know, and he has all this time in the world. And, you know, he, he, he still follows that seven-day plan because it's just convenient with his group of friends. But yes, mm. if you have the time, why not play with it? Especially if you're trying yeah. to BQ or PR in certain areas, there's no reason why you can't try it. Yeah. And we have Amy who asks, uh, any dietary changes for masters runners? Do you have any advice for Amy? Yeah, this is a great question because I think that, um, 
you know, this happened to me this year when I turned 50. I just recently turned 50 in June. And I noticed that I, I just, it was hard for me to get down to my race weight all of a sudden. Like I was training the same number of hours, the same intensity as I did in, you know, in 2019 or 2018. And I'm like, I'm just not getting there, you know? And, and I was looking down at it and I was going through my, my nutrition log. Um, and I was just overdoing it on the amount of protein that I was taking in. I was just taking a significant amount of protein. I also had kids, which back then weren't eating adult food yet. They were still babies uh, and infants and toddlers. So, so now all their leftovers, I kind of like the garbage disposal, you know, I have their chicken nuggets and I have their, their peas and, and rice and stuff. And so I added all these additional calories to my diet and I was putting in an additional 600 calories a day, you know, of protein and additional food. So yeah, if you do this, you have to be careful. There's a couple of things you need to keep in mind. Number one, I think that we're all pretty much almost vitamin D deficient and deficient in zinc and magnesium. All of us, I think so. Um, especially even us that like you guys that live in a, in a very, um, you know, sunny country, um, you know, lack of sun is not the problem in Australia, just like in Miami and South Beach. Uh, lack of sun is not the problem. The problem is that we spend too much time indoors and, <clears throat> and we're not getting enough sun exposure, um, quality sun exposure, right? Nobody's asking you to go out there at two o'clock in the afternoon and burn in your, by your pool deck wearing, uh, you know, banana boat uh, you know, screen or baby oil like my wife used to do when she was a teenager. So no, but, you know, being outside and just getting 30 minutes of quality sun will do wonders for your vitamin D. Um, and so these are nutrients that you need to keep in mind. Zinc, I think we're all zinc deficient. Uh, and zinc supplementation is something that I think that as you get older, you need to seriously look at. Um, I think the recommended allowance in the United States is something between 25 and 50 milligrams. I think you should just check it locally with your own government to see what's what's recommended based on, on uh, where you live um, of zinc. And then magnesium, I think we're all deficient in magnesium. Every transplant patient that I operate on um, gets put on supplemental magnesium for the rest of their life because we're so magnesium deficient in our diets. Uh, and a lot of that has to do that we're just not getting it through our, through our good nuts and seeds and and having a varied uh, diet like we used to when we were younger, we got a lot of things from processed boxes, and so it's easy to to, to fall into that that realm. And <clears throat> I speak from experience myself. You know, I think we, I, I myself have been magnesium deficient over the years and not known it. Um, and you know, we could go off on this tremendous tangent because of my my undergraduate degree from the University of Florida is in biochemistry and nutrition. And so I, I did quite a bit of time. Um, you would think that I would have known better, but it took other athletes pointing it out to me for me to figure it out um, how deficient we really are. So we need to look at the, the amount of protein intake that we're taking. Uh, we do not need as much protein as we think we need. Um, I think that a lot of athletes um, underestimate the amount of, of carbohydrate calories that they're taking. And there's a lot of great talks. I heard your your talk with Zach Bitter on his show, um, which is where I first heard of you. Um, it was an excellent conversation. And Zach Bitter is just an excellent person to look at. I mean, not everybody can be keto. And it's very difficult to be keto and be an endurance athlete. Is it doable? Absolutely. Can you run on ketones? Yes. As you become a master's athlete, is it recommended? 
I think if you look at the research from the University of Southern California with uh, Dr. Walter Longo, which is long, a longevity expert, um, he's, he makes it very clear that in order to continue on in your later decades in life and, and the best diet for us is one that has higher carbohydrates, uh, the same number of fats and less protein as we get older, um, as we get into our, our master's years. And then as you get much older, like past 60, then you should add more protein to your diet. So I think it would behoove the average listener, the average runner to invest in two things, a good physio and a good dietitian as you get older. If you can swing a coach in there because you have the finances to do it, fantastic. But if I had to invest in, in two things, and that's all I had to do is I would have someone to evaluate my gait and my running form and somebody to evaluate my diet and my nutritional balance and my blood work to see where I'm deficient at. And uh, if you can't afford those two things, definitely, you know, doing your, your research and looking at where are you in the spectrum between under 50 or over 50, under 60. Once you get to that 60 range, you need to add more protein. Um, and we need to be cautious, right, Brody? Because if we add too much protein, then there's a chance that we could run into renal failure um, because protein is, is, you know, metabolized and the kidneys take a big hit, um, which is why they recommend also that you don't take uh, Advil or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories during marathons and endurance events. It's not recommended at all. At the end of the race, you could take whatever you want, but during the race, it, it's a huge no-no. Um, I advocate that tremendously too in our running community since I'm the medical director for the Miami Marathon. And uh, we took Advil and all non-steroidal anti-inflammatories out of our aid stations. And we only have acetaminophen and, and Tylenol out there. If you look at the big races, that's all they have. Um, it's, it's, it's horrible. If you give an African-American um, non-steroidal during a race, chances are that you might put them into renal failure at the end of a race. So it's, okay. you have to be very cautious. Great insights there. And um, when you're talking about runners, like highly prioritizing the help of a dietitian, um, if you, if some people feel that, I guess, excessive or unnecessary, like I think just as a bare minimum, just routine health checks, blood tests, like even if it's just every six months, that's just to check it. If you're deficient in anything is a pretty, um, good thing just to do because athletes want to, or masters runners, they want to keep running. They want to do all they can to maintain their energy levels and not get injured. And they are willing to, to do a lot in terms of their, their training. Um, but probably ignore the fact that maybe a, um, regular health check or blood routine, um, every six months or so might be, very crucial in their particular training cycle to help with them with their, their endeavors and their, their training goals. Yeah. I think that it's, I think it's, it's, it's of utmost priority as we get older. Um, you go to the mm. doctor for everything else. And, and, and let me tell you that <clears throat> I could tell you with a hundred percent certainty that there is no longer a stereotype of what heart disease looks like as far as uh, body habit is, and type of person. So it, you could look as healthy as you and I look and come into my office and, and, and need a heart transplant uh, because you have advanced heart failure um, for multiple reasons that, that we could you know get into later. But the point is that 
there is no stereotype. I mean, the typical stereotype that we think about, you know, the overweight smoking person um, with high cholesterol and what have you, but these days high cholesterol can come from a keto diet that you're doing wrong um, because you're not following a good dietitian. You're just, you're trying to piece it together as best as possible with friends or you heard, you know, typically here in the United States is that we, people hear through a friend, oh, you know, high fat, uh, low carb diet, just don't eat any carbs and eat all the high fat you want. Oh my God, I lost eight pounds. I feel fantastic. Um, but go get your lipid panel checked. You know, you'll find out that you might have hyperlipidemia, which is completely debatable, right? Whether that's really because of the ketones and other variations that uh, people like Peter Atia and his podcast talk about in great detail. If somebody wants to listen to that and get into like the true specifics of, of that world, um, or is it because you're just eating the wrong fats <laughs> all the time? You know, your diet consists of the wrong thing. And we're all guilty of it. I, I mean, I'm sure in Australia you see this too. Um, you know, people have their, you know, their beers after their runs or, or, you know, the donut challenge, for example. Well, if you eat beer and donuts and French fries on a weekly basis after some workouts, I guarantee you, you're going to have high cholesterol and you're not going to have the high fats that you want floating, the ketones that you're looking for. Um, and I was guilty of this earlier this year. I went for my lipid profile check and my, my primary care physician comes back and he says, your cholesterol is like 289. And in the United States, it's supposed to be less than 200. And never in my life had I ever had any cholesterol issues, ever, ever, ever. And I started looking at my dietary intake and my protein intake was completely wrong. I was eating... Uh, too high of saturated fats, even though I was having a lot of gamey meats like elk and, and bison and things of that nature, I was eating it too often, way too many times during the week. And I was having a lot less carbohydrates. So I switched my diet to something that's a little bit more carbohydrate rich um, and less protein. And I'm waiting to do my blood work now in September, October um, again. But as a master's athlete, I can't stress enough, like what you said, getting a, a regular uh, profile blood profiles that includes mm. your basic chemistries, your basic lipid profile, your basic um, vitamins. So, um, you know, not just your fat soluble vitamins that are A, D, E, and K, but you want to look at everything. You want to look at your hemoglobin, your hematocrit, things that your primary care physician will for sure take a look. And if you can't find someone that does it, there are cardiologists that do this on a regular basis. I know for for a fact that they exist in Australia, 100%. Um, there's cardiologists that deal with specifically, you know, with runners. And if, they, if there's not one in your neighborhood, find one. Or get your blood work done by yours and then have it sent to someone that deals with it, and whether they're in another part of, this, of the country. Um, yeah. It's well worth it to do it and get it right. Um, so, yeah. Nice message. Nice message to finish on. And um, as we wrap up, are there any other final tips, takeaways you might have for Masters Runners, anything that we might not have discussed already today? Yeah, I think that the, the Masters Runners, you know, we all tend to fall into this trap of <clears throat> of trying to get into the right training program and trying to fight the right, um, you know, training strategy. Um, you know, I would tell Masters Runners that to be very careful about following books um, to a T, you know, I would definitely venture into finding more custom training plans by a coach and maybe invest a little bit of money in, in, in buying a plan that's semi-custom to you. Um, and then I would also tell everyone that, um, 
There's a very good working on your forms and your mechanics. Uh, like we said earlier, is tremendous. That, a takeaway there, there's a very good um, physiotherapist in the United States, um, Dr. Jay Dicheri. Um His last name is D-I-C-H-A-R-R-Y. Uh, and Jay <clears throat> wrote a book called uh, Running Rewired. Um, and his book has everything about running that you can imagine. I mean, he really talks about it in great detail. And you would imagine that the pose method or chi running and all those things that are out there, they work maybe for a lot of new runners or runners that have had really bad injuries over the years and have gotten chronically injured and, and uh, are looking for ways to rediscover their running. And there's some fantastic success stories. And I have to tell you that I've tried both. Um, Dr. Romanoff from Pose Running lives here in South Florida. So one of my triathlon coaches was one of his uh, um, trained coaches. And, um, you know, I tried running like that. Let me tell you, it wasn't easy. <laughs> it was not. It was very hard. And Chi running with Danny Dreyer, um, I used some of his um, tactics and some of his tr um, uh, technique uh, ideas, especially with, you know, keeping your head up at all times, never looking down. Um, you know, in their arms and your elbows behind you, never in front of your chest, you know, all the mistakes that we make crossing the midline with your, with your arms when you're running, all those little things. Like I used it in Chicago and it actually made me feel more comfortable, you know, that time I BQ'd. But Jay DeSherry does an excellent job because in that book, towards the end, he talks about um, strength training and how to do it with pictures of the drills and, um, all the different circuits. He has a core circuit. He has a strength phase. He has a power liftoff phase towards the end of your training period, uh, using a TRX, using a Swiss ball, using nothing but homemade things. Um, and he makes a very good board that you might've heard about called the mobile board, which has basically a cutout for your, your first toe. I don't know if you have this in your practice. Um, I've talked to, to, to Jay on the podcast before and I've had a, a lot of my clients that use his mobile board and yeah, find it very effective and on his website, plenty of exercises to, to, to do with that mobile board, even if it's just like a deadlift or, um, mm -hmm. balancing banded work, all that sort of stuff. So yeah, definitely can get very creative. Yeah. The first person I ever saw using it was Marinda Caffrey and, uh, Tim O'Donnell on their, uh, YouTube channel. And I said, I got to get this thing. So I reached out to Jay and, and uh, his website and, and I got it like you have preached. And yeah, and if I recall, I do recall that you did have Jay on your on your podcast um, or that had spoken to him about it. And um, but yeah, his book is great. I mean, his book is just fantastic. And as, as I'm sure that, that your book is going to have a lot of great information to which I look forward to reading. Great. Yeah. Well, um, custom plans, looking at someone to look at your mechanics, um, the running rewide book, I highly recommend as well. It's on my bookshelf. Um, yeah, Frank, this has been great. I think the, the quality of information and how you've answered all of these in a really succinct manner and more information than I could have. Um, I think we went off on a lot of really useful tangents about, um, dietary requirements and that sort of stuff and blood work and heart health. And I think a lot of this is, is really, really helpful for, for masters runners and looking forward to bringing this to the patron tribe. So thanks for 
participating in this. Thanks for agreeing to come on. And yeah, thanks for sharing all your wisdom. No, I appreciate it. It's been a, a great, uh, great chat. And I look forward to, uh, to doing many more in the future and talking with your Patreons and, and uh, hearing more about what they have to say and looking forward to aging gracefully into masterhood. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. I think a couple of these uh, questions or these answers um, has merit for a whole different, a whole another podcast episode. So yeah, be glad to get you to come back and to jump on. Yeah, sure. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for having me on. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.